Hello and welcome to the Achieve Your Goals podcast, the show that empowers you to wake up to your full potential and achieve your biggest goals and dreams. I am your host, Hal Elrod, and I invite you to join us each week as we share actionable strategies to take your life to the next level, as well as interview world-class experts and entrepreneurs who have achieved extraordinary goals themselves, and we ask them to give you a peek behind the curtain and teach you exactly what you need to do to do the same. Ready? Here we go. Welcome, everybody, to Achieve Your Goals podcast. I'm John Berghoff, standing in for Hal Elrod. If you're just tuning in and curious who I am or why I'm standing in, you can always go back and listen to episode 152. The short story is Hal is winning a battle against a crazy rare form of cancer right now. So as we always do at the kickoff of an episode, please take a moment, send some positive energy, some love, some healing vibes towards Hal, his family, and also towards everyone else in your world, including yourselves, because if you believe that sending out that energy can do something positive for others, then it will. Thank you for tuning in. We've got an awesome episode today. It's fun for me because I got to know Christopher Lockhead, the author of Play Bigger. If you're watching us on the live stream, I'm holding up his book right now. Go ahead and just go download a copy or order a copy on Amazon right away. We're going to talk to Christopher about what category design is. We're going to talk about what it means to build a legendary life and follow Christopher, learn more from him. Make sure you go check out Legends and Losers podcast. Christopher, thanks for being here today, man. John, I'm stoked to be with you and everybody in the uh, Miracle Morning world. This is kind of cool. I just thought of the irony to this, that you and I are here to talk about for entrepreneurs or anybody who's considering being an entrepreneur, this idea of creating a category. And here we are speaking to a community that, in my mind, represents the creation of a category. Like, Hal created a category, didn't he? Well, he absolutely did. And he may not know this, but I'm happy to explain why. But he is a legendary category designer because he has created a really a new category that he dominates in this whole world of personal improvement. And, you know, the Miracle Morning has become a lifestyle category. That is to say, you know, it's something obviously people do every day. And so not only has he created a new category for himself as a, you know, a guru, as a coach, as an author, of course, as a podcaster, but maybe even more importantly, you know, for all of us, he's created a new category of behavior in the morning. You know, he's taught us all that we should take some time, particularly, you know, with that first hour or so in the morning to, uh, you know, review what's important and touch on a key couple things that really matter to us, get ourselves centered and grounded, remind ourselves of who we are so that we can focus on who we want to be during the day. And, you know, the reality is it's one thing to create a new category for himself in his business, but I think it's even more impressive that Hal has really created, if you will, a new category of our day, of what we do on pretty much a daily basis. And he's made a huge difference as a result. So shout out to Hal. We want you to get better. We want you back in the One Life world. I know I can speak for my adopted brother, Tim Rode, and say that we'd love to see him back in that community as well. But more importantly, just back out in the world, making the difference that only Hal can make. That's awesome. That's awesome. Hal, you would love to know, buddy, that Christopher was kind enough to host me along with my good friend, Scott Lowry, at his home a couple of weeks ago. And we got to experience, to me, it was a miracle day and a half, but we got to experience a miracle morning on the beach, which Christopher, it was awesome, man. You lit a little bit of a fire with Scott and I, introducing us to the mixed martial arts that you practice and the setting of all settings, man. What a beautiful place that you live. Congrats on what you've created for yourself and for others. It was cool, man. Thanks for having us. 
Thank you. I'm so glad that you and Scott came. And not only did we get to do a lot of great work together on category design for flow and otherwise, we got to behave a little badly, um, which is always fun. And we did get to have a miracle morning. I'm lucky enough that I live two blocks from the beach here in the beautiful town of Santa Cruz, California. And well, it's always fun to go train in a gym or a dojo or wherever the best dojo in the world, the best place to train in the world, I think, is on the beach. And so to be able to take you and Scott out for your first ever martial arts training program and to do it in the morning, on the sand, staring out at the Pacific Ocean as we uh, tried to punch each other in the face. (laughs) (laughs) It was pretty miraculous, I think. It was awesome. And you know, whether it was punching each other in the face on the sand or what I'm looking at, if you're watching this stream live, the background on your wall, one of the things I admire about you is you really care about your environment and you care about designing a life. And so later in this episode, I want this to get personal and I want our audience to get to hear how it is that for a long time, you've cared about designing a lifestyle that lines up with your values. But let's start with what you've recently made a splash with your book, Play Bigger, it's all about how pirates, dreamers, and innovators create and dominate markets. And your podcast that really just expands on that concept. Where do you want to start? We've said this phrase, category design. Let's introduce what is category design? What is that? Sure. There's a couple of ways you can think about it. The clearest way off the top is category design is a new management discipline that allows either an individual in their life and their career or a business, a corporation or an enterprise of any kind, really, to design a unique niche or place for themselves in the market and design that niche, you know, to quote our friend Scott, which I now, I rip him off all the time. Scott said, design your niche and get reach. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, Maybe we should say design your niche and get nouveau reach. And so category design is really about carving out a unique category or niche for yourself that you can dominate and as such be viewed as uh, solving a problem that matters. And if you take a really big step back, John, and you study what is it the legendary entrepreneurs have done over time, in particular, what have they done that's different? And most of us, when we want to try to do something legendary in our lives, we think about you know designing a great product or service And second, designing a great business to deliver that product or service. And those are the two big levers, if you will, that most innovators, most entrepreneurs pull. And so whatever the challenge they face, they pull those. We're going to make our product better. You know, oh, we're going to expand our company. We're going to hire more people. We're going to modify our business model, whatever we're going to do. And those two things are, of course, incredibly important. But when you study the legends, here's what you learn. They pull three levers or levers. Is it levers or levers, John? I don't know. Can somebody look that up? Is it levers or levers? Let's find that out. Maybe it's, I don't want you to leave me. So maybe it's a lever. <laughs> what, what would be, and is plural lever actually levers or is it Levi? Yeah. And, you know, my buddy, David Sheldon, who's been a big fan and supporter of Legends of Losers, he gave me one recently, which is, what is the plural of cul-de-sac? <laughs> is it cul-de-sacs? Is it culls? <laughs> The sacks. <laughs> anyway, we've got to be careful when we talk about sacks, but I digress. And so the legends pull three levers. They design a legendary category, product, and company. And another way to think about it, John, is every market was designed or set up by somebody. So a simple question I like to think about. And once you start to play with category design, you'll see categories everywhere, which is, why is it 
that you can buy an incredible flat screen TV at Costco for about $150. And if you want a high-end pair of sunglasses, they cost about $300. Hmm. And so you think about, if you will, the value exchange of that. One product is this incredible piece of technology that talks to a satellite hovering over planet Earth, and the other product blocks the sun out of your eyes. And one's worth double the other. And if you took a step back, you could really, I think, build an argument that the television should be more expensive than the sunglasses just based on the merit of the product. But the way the category got designed, somebody taught us, or if you will, conditioned the market to think about a problem and a solution in a very specific way. And so what category designers do is they carve out a niche for themselves by expressing a point of view that frames a problem. And when the world agrees with them about that problem, pow, that's how you get the Apple iPad. That's how you get five-hour energy. That's how you get Sarah Blakely and Spanx. That's how you get Clarence Birdseye. And he's the category designer of frozen food. Before Clarence, there was food and canned food. And in the 20s, he invented frozen food and he built the category and the company delivered it. And so my point, John, is that every product or service that you and I love exists because some legendary innovator, either on purpose or by accident, what we call in the book play bigger, prosecuted the magic triangle. That is to say they got product, company, and category right at the same time. And people who do that carve out a place for themselves that's really differentiated. And that's really the three levers or levers, (laughs) levers that the legends pull that sort of the typical entrepreneur who's never heard about category design or maybe didn't have that natural intuition about teaching the market to think in the way they wanted them to. Yeah. Yeah. And tell me if I've got this right, but what I hear and is so helpful for me, because when I think about my services that I offer as an entrepreneur, I get so caught up thinking about the features and the benefits, the bells and whistles. It's got to be a faster, better carbon dingulator, and it's got to do more of this or that, right? Yeah. And what I hear you saying is, hey, that's all great. And I'm reminded of my days at Vitamix. You know, we had what we thought was undeniably the best product in the world. It did all the cool things better than everything else. But what I was reminded of through that experience that I feel like you have articulated in such an easy to understand way is that we still had to convince the marketplace that this wasn't just another version of a blender, but it was something different. And so I'd love, maybe give us a few more examples or the kinds of questions that our listeners should be asking themselves to make sure that they're really focusing on not just making their product better, but how they're telling their story better. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. Oh, (laughs) lots of thoughts (laughs) on that. For better or for worse, it's my life's work. So Yeah. yeah, I got a lot of thought on that. You know, the interesting thing is category design is about teaching the world to think about things the way you want them to, in particular, a problem or solution. And so, you know, to your point, if your innovation requires that and you can make that happen, it's the distinction between creating pull and push. That is to say, if you think about most people, when they start a business or maybe they're a solopreneur or whatever they're doing or just in their career, they on a one-on-one basis try to communicate what makes them good at what they do and why they're valuable. Mm -hmm. And so that's, if you will, a sales type situation, right? Yeah. And in a business environment, a lot of people call that go-to market. We need to have a go-to-market strategy, right? And that's essentially enabling us to reach out and touch the people that we want. And then when we engage with those people, however we do it, whether it's digitally or in person or however we're doing it, 
that we on a one-on-one basis essentially tell them our story in hopes that we can win them over to our point of view and they're open to potentially buying what we have to sell. And so that's go-to-market. Category design is about teaching the market to come to you. So, you know, there's that famous Victor Hugo quote where he says, all the armies of the world can't stop an idea whose time has come. Mm. Category design is about making it your time. And so I'll give you a specific example. It's one I sort of really love, which is Pablo Picasso, arguably the most famous painter in the world. And I'm not an expert on painting by any stretch of the imagination. But what I do know is at the beginning of his career, if you look at a lot of his early work, John, what you see is nice paintings. And they're, you know, sunsets and ladies and fruit or whatever the hell he was painting at the time. Yeah, yeah. And people thought, oh yeah, very talented painter, but he was just another guy doing landscapes or whatever he was doing. And it's only when he started to paint with those squares and take the boob and stick it where the ear's supposed to be and take the eye and stick it where the arm's supposed to be and make it look the way we understand a Picasso to look today, that he ultimately became Picasso. Now, here's the interesting thing. If he had just done that and said, here are my paintings, the world would have looked at them and said, what's wrong with you? Clearly, you know, there's something that you're drinking and maybe there's a hallucinogen, you know, something's involved here. Are you crazy? Yeah. And so I would posit to you, John, that his greatest design, his greatest piece of art is the creation of a new category of art called cubism. Mm -hmm. See, his breakthrough was so innovative that in order for you and I to be able to look at it, and judge it on its merit or on the merit that he wanted us to judge it on, we couldn't compare it to what had come before. Because if you compared a typical landscape or a beautiful, you know, portrait or whatever to these weird things with squares and all over the place, you would go like, one's crazy and one's great, right? Because the point of reference was a beautiful landscape or what have you. So he literally, with a different, and I use that word on purpose, point of view, teaches the world or if you will, opens the world up to a new definition or a new interpretation of what art is. And when he teaches us how to think about and appreciate cubism, then pa-pow, he becomes the number one cubist artist in the world. And so here's what I would argue to you, that what makes Picasso Picasso is actually the category called cubism. And without people accepting that as a new and distinct category, and therefore him as, if you will, the category king, if you'd compared him to what had come before, then everybody just goes, that guy's crazy. He's painting the boob where the ear should be. Everything's in squares. This thing's nuts. Well, we're not paying attention. Yeah. And so it's his point of view that cubism is a new type of art and therefore requires a whole new way of appreciating art that then opens the world up to see the genius in what he's doing. And it turns out, that it's that, if you will, market education and point of view around why they're doing something different. That's something that many of the greatest innovators over time intuitively understood. They understood how to teach the market to think differently. That's what Steve Jobs did. That's what Larry Ellison, the founder of Oracle, did. That's what Mark Benioff, the founder of Salesforce, did. That's what Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook, did. And that's what Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanx, did. Great example. When you say point of view, it reminds me of my old school sales training days. We had all these different words, framing or positioning. And really, you just described it so well with that example. It's teaching people how to view something and to see what it is in a whole new, different way. Tell us about maybe in your book, Play Bigger. 
what's some of the advice that you would give to an entrepreneur who's trying to develop their point of view? What are maybe some of the components that they need to make sure, okay, I've got to have an answer to this question and this question. Like when we were at your house, it was really cool because you showed us examples of companies and how they have articulated their point of view, where by the time you hear it at the end, you cannot deny that they have created a new frame around something. One example maybe would be, I learned from you about this idea of metrics that matter, right? Deciding how they're going to bucket you or you decide how they're going to see it. Otherwise, they'll put you in a position that you don't want. Talk about that. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, John. All of what you just said is built on a simple but powerful premise, which is in the world, whether as an individual or as a company, the world is going to position you or you're going to position yourself. You know, one of the great things Muhammad Ali, rest his soul, said was, well, if I don't tell them I'm the greatest, how are they going to know? Right? And so there was an athlete, right? There was an athlete positioning himself as the greatest boxer of all time. And of course, everybody in the world called him the greatest boxer of all time. And, you know, most serious boxing fans would tell you that there were and are other boxers who you might consider greater as a pure boxer, but there's nobody who even considers that Muhammad Ali isn't the greatest of all time because that's what he said. And so it starts with this notion of position yourself or be positioned. Now, when you unpack that, John, what you realize is that you and I as human beings put everything into buckets in our head because that's how we relate to it. So for example, if someone starts talking to me about you know, the Chrysler Voyager product, well, I don't have children and I don't have any interest in a minivan. And so if you say Chrysler Voyager to me, that's not a vehicle I'm going to be interested in. And the reason I'm not, you can scream your brand name at me all you want. You can do ads on TV. You can be in my email inbox. You can be in my social media if you're Chrysler Voyager. But I don't care about that category because I'm an uncle, not a dad. So I don't care about a category called minivan. And I understand the brand Chrysler Voyager is inside of this mega brand called Vehicle. And this subcomponent of the vehicle called minivan. On the other hand, if you say, hey, there's a new Mustang coming out. Now you're talking to me. Why? Because I'm an adult male and I've decided a long time ago, I think the category called muscle cars are freaking cool. And so if there's a new Mustang or a Corvette or whatever coming out, I want to hear about that. So I have brand preference for Mustang because I love muscle cars. And so my point is, you and I as human beings put everything, each other and particularly companies and products, into a folder system in our head, if you will. And that's called a category. Everything gets a label on it. And even more importantly, John, everybody puts the category of product or service into the label and then they decide, is this category a must-have? a nice to have, or an I don't care about. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we do as human beings. And so I'm going to say something that a lot of people find outrageous. The category makes the brand. The category makes the company or the product, not the other way around. And so can I share with you a simple example? Yeah, please, please. So as I mentioned, I live in beautiful Santa Cruz, California. And I think maybe a couple of years ago, The mayor must have put a new law in place that says there has to be a new craft beer place that opens in Santa Cruz every 20 minutes. (laughs) And so at least on the West Coast in this part of the world, this category of beer 
called craft beer is the hot new category. And there are all these brew pubs opening up. And in my neighborhood, one just recently opened up and they're in a little strip mall. And at the very front of the mall, they put up a sign, you know, those sort of flag signs that kind of wave in the wind. And interestingly enough, they didn't put up a sign with their brand name on it. So it didn't say John and Christopher's Beer Place. The sign says Craft Beer. That's so great. And I'm guessing it's two dudes that opened this place because normally it's two dudes. And I don't know these dudes from a hole in the wall. But what I do know is whoever opened up this craft beer place, whether they realized it or not, they intuitively understood something about what's going on in this giant category called the beer market, which is there's a subcategory in the beer market that is experiencing a lot of pull right now. Mm-hmm. And that subcategory is called craft beer. And so they understood that. They wanted to grab their position in that category. They wanted to grab that market. They wanted to scream to the world, we're one of these, not one of those. And so rather than putting up a sign that said John and Christopher's Beer Pub, they put up a sign that said craft beer. And that's because they're screaming the category to capture your attention and then build loyalty with their brand and their product, which of course is their restaurant. And so my point is, legendary entrepreneurs intuitively understand there's a way people think about markets and they take responsibility for trying to craft haha the way people think about those markets and attach to hot categories. That's awesome. Hey, this has been, in my mind, a perfect introduction to category design. And I just want to remind all of our Miracle Morning community, all of our Achieve Your Goals podcast listeners, to go check out the book Play Bigger, to find Chris on Legends and Losers. Christopher, I'm going to go out of order a little bit here. I wanted to jump right into category design. And I love the way that we started this. I want to go backwards. And one of the things that I enjoyed hearing about in your first podcast episode and when I heard you speak at the GoBundance event in Whistler is your journey as an entrepreneur. And particularly, I love the way that you talk about the difference between Big E, Little E, and the idea that entrepreneurship for some people is a way up, but for a lot of us, it's also a way out. And so I just want everyone to hear a little bit about your personal journey of how entrepreneurship happened for you, because I know one of your missions is to help a lot of other entrepreneurs. That matters to you more than anything. Yeah, it really does because I see a deep connection, John, between entrepreneurship and living the American dream. We live in a country and I'm a naturalized American. So I chose to live here and I became an American citizen, um, originally from Canada. And what I know about the United States more than anywhere else, it's true in Canada, but it's especially true here is, you know, this is a country that was founded on the ability to come here with nothing and make something legendary happen in your life. And that who you are and your background and your race and your education and et cetera, et cetera, whatever differences you might have from anybody else should be irrelevant, that we all have the right to pursue happiness. And I love that. So anyway, for me, you know, being an entrepreneur is not some theoretical BS discussion. I started at 18. I got thrown out of school for being stupid. I uh, you know, was collecting too many F's and C's along the way. And it turns out, John, <laughs> that if you have F's, C's, and D's on your report cards, sooner or later they say, hey, you know what? You can't keep coming here. <laughs> <laughs> and so at 18, I found myself out of school and working a, a manual labor job and really wondering what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And so I decided to start a company with the encouragement of my dear friend, Jack Hughes. And so entrepreneurship for me 
was truly a way out. So I'm what you could think of as a small e entrepreneur. That is to say, you know, somebody who starts with nothing. I started with a phone, the yellow pages back in the old days, and a Samsung clone personal computer, telemarketing people, selling custom development and training for personal computers. And that's how I started. And you know, I was lucky enough to be able to retire last year at 48 years old. And, you know, I've been a three-time CMO of publicly traded companies and been involved with helping to start and or starting kind of more companies since then than I can count. And the distinction I would draw, John, is that for some of us, entrepreneurship really is our only option. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and not that there's wrong with being a manual laborer. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But I was somebody that I felt that there was more that was possible for me. And so I wanted to try to swing for the fences in my life. And I've spent most of my professional life in Silicon Valley working with what you could call big E entrepreneurs. And the distinction between the two is a small E entrepreneur is somebody who starts with pretty much nothing and has to go for it pretty much on their own. And a big E entrepreneur are the ones that I've worked with in Silicon Valley. You know, think about generally fairly well-educated folks coming out of often top-tier schools, often with a technical or engineering or computer science background who discover or create an amazing carbonangulator of some sort, and then ultimately end up raising, in many cases, several hundred million dollars from top-tier venture capitalists on Sand Hill Road, building a giant category company and a great set of products, and ultimately going public and becoming Facebook or Salesforce.com or Oracle or Cisco or you know Snapchat, who just went public as a great example. Those are biggie entrepreneurs. And those entrepreneurs make a giant difference. And I have worked with them for, like I said, the better part of my career. And I think they're amazing. However, the only big distinction is, you know, if you raise $200 million from venture capitalists in Silicon Valley to build your business, if your business fails, chances are you're not going to miss a meal. Whereas for the small entrepreneur, if you don't close the sale, you can't pay the rent. And so you start to cuddle with the landlady because if you don't get the deal done, you know, I don't know about you, but I can't go to the grocery store and say, Hey, um, I got this new business that I just started and I'm a young guy and I got a printout here of my pipeline of people who said they're going to buy from me. And so (laughs) would you mind giving me some groceries? You know, they're going to say, hey, you know, maybe you're a nice guy, but like your list of prospects and hopes and dreams for your future are not anything we can put in the cash register. So you're not allowed to leave here with groceries. And that's a very different reality than the reality of, you know, we just raised $200 million and we're going to go for it. So that's the distinction, biggie, smallie. And, you know, I deeply relate to both because... I'm a small E guy and I played for most of my life in the big E world, but I don't forget where I started. Yeah. I love that, man. That's really awesome. That is really cool. Thanks for sharing that. I'm just going to keep asking for these stories here because I think they're beautiful. I find it ironic that the title of your book is Play Bigger. And very early in your career, you started a marketing firm by the name of Roger Pierce, which is such a classic example of quite literally playing bigger than you are. Can you share with this audience that story? I don't even know if it's in the book. I just heard you share it one night. And Actually, you got to hear this. I don't think it's in the book. And you'll have to excuse me. The book is, for me personally, uh, You know, I have three other co-authors and it was an amazing collaboration. Actually, the greatest single work project I've ever been involved with. But for me, the book is just my life. And so I have a hard time remembering what's in the book and just what's in my life. So I don't think this is in the book, but maybe it is. But anyway, whatever. So... When Jack convinced me to go into business with him at 18, he was working at a small software company. I was an orderly in a hospital and a rapidly failing punk rock musician. 
<laughs> my quest to be the next, you know, Joey Ramone was not going well. <laughs> and so when we I went- I begged to differ, by the way. We had, a good, we had a good jam session. And listen, can I reveal something about you that I don't know that everybody knows, John? <laughs> Go for it. When John Berghoff travels, he travels with a giant freaking drum. Like a drum, like a boom, 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 drum, like big, like doesn't fit in your carry-on kind of drum. <laughs> and I said to him, well, why do you travel with this giant freaking drum? You know, play that in your hotel room? You can't do that. And he goes, oh, yes, I can. <laughs> <laughs> and so when John and Scott were here in Santa Cruz recently, he, of course, had his giant drum and I play guitar. And so, yeah, we did have some fun jamming, didn't we? Yeah, we definitely, in our own minds, were legendary for a moment. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, You got to be a legend in somebody's mind. All right, now, where were we? Roger Pierce. <laughs> Roger. Yeah, I tend to see zebras. I have an ADD situation that goes on. <laughs> and, you know, zebras or naked ladies go by, I get distracted. So when Jack and I started the company, we thought, well, you know, I was 18, he was 19. We were starting in a technical world. Neither one of us had a degree, no education, no experience, no money, no relationships. We thought, nobody's going to buy from us. This is ridiculous. At the time, there was a television show on TV called Remington Steel, starring Pierce Brosnan. And you may recall the premise for the show was a gal, actually, a woman started a private investigation firm. And she didn't think anybody would buy or people might not buy from her because she was female. This was back in the 80s. And so she thought, well, I'm going to name the agency after a guy who doesn't exist. And then I'm going to hire a guy to be that guy who will work for me and the world will think I work for him. And then maybe this will work out. It just shows you how times have changed. Anyway, and so that show is called Remington Steel. And the actor who played that character was named Pierce Brosnan. And so one day we thought, okay, well, why don't we make up a guy like that? That's a great idea. And so we thought, well, what should the name of the guy be? And we thought, okay, well, Pierce Brosnan. So Pierce is a strong, manly kind of a name. So we actually took that as our character's last name. And we were living in Montreal, Canada. So we needed a name that kind of worked well in French and English. So we picked Roger instead of Roger. So the name of the company we came up with, John, was Roger Pierce et Associate. Roger Pierce and Associate. And with what little money we had, we tried to buy expensive business cards and our titles, you know, it's a Christopher W. Lockhead, partner slash in French, associé. And so everybody just figured there was this 55-year-old guy named Roger Pierce running the show and Jack and I probably worked for him and that's what made it work. What'd you do when people would call asking for Roger? Well, at first we just sort of made stuff up on the fly and then we realized like if Jack was saying one thing and I was saying the other, we might get caught and so we didn't want to get caught. And so we've decided to standardize on an answer. So when anybody asked to speak to Roger or where he was or why he wasn't joining for this business dinner or whatever the case may be, we would just say, oh, he's in Geneva right now. Can I help you? Because <laughs> right? if you were Roger Pierce, wouldn't you be in Geneva like negotiating a peace treaty or something? <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so Roger lives in infamy. That's so great. Thank you for sharing that story, Chris. That is awesome. To get even more personal, I want to pay you a compliment. One of the things that I admired about you that I have to admit was a surprise because when I first met you, you know, look at the background. You've got, is that Steve McQueen going backwards in the car? That right here is Steve McQueen. 
in his bullet Mustang, I'll have you know. Yes. And what I love about it is most photos of situations like that are guys racing forward or gals for that matter in cars, right? And what I love about this is Steve is peeling out backwards at 80 miles an hour in his Mustang. So I just, I thought that was a fun photograph. I love that. I love it. What I was going to point out, and I've intended on complimenting, I almost forgot what I was going to say, is when I first met you, you know, you're a manly man. You can kill a guy with your bare hands. You've got guitars. Trying trying real hard not to. (laughs) Trying not to. Yeah. You're prepared if you need to. You got guitars. You've got boxing gloves hanging from your guest bathroom wall. And when I showed up to your home, one of the things that I really respected is the love that you show to your wife. I'll always remember that. It might stick out more than anything else. And I admired it. I loved seeing it and experiencing it. The love that you have for your girls, your dinosaurs. We don't even need to explain that. But I just love the way you respect and treat and love people and life. And I want to finish by asking you, you know, what matters to you most when it comes to how you live your life? And I see that you've set up a life that reminds you of things that have meaning to you. So I wanted to finish with what matters most to you? First of all, thank you, John, for those wonderful comments. And yeah, you know what? Listen, with Carrie, my wife, why would you marry a person if you didn't love them? Doesn't make any sense. So yeah, I love her dearly and she's just an amazing gift every day. And so my life is very simple. I care about two things inside of a very big box. So maybe three things, but two things inside a box. So the two things I care about are making a difference and having an embarrassingly large amount of fun and doing those two things with people that I love. And one of the men I admire the most in the world is actually Carrie's dad, Phil Cosentino. And he's going to be on an upcoming episode of Legends and Losers. I could tell you why if you care. But one of the reasons I admire Phil so much is he is a simple man. Hmm. And I think in a lot of ways, there's no greater achievement in life than to have a simple life, a life that works for you, that is very simple. And somehow, and I'll speak for myself, I have been caught in the past in a lot of things. And you wake up and you go, you know, my life's really complicated. I got all this stuff going on. Why is this stuff going on? Does this really work for me? Does it make me happy? And so particularly over the last decade in my life, I have strived to be a simple man and really focus on those two things. Where and how can I make a difference? How can I have an embarrassingly large amount of fun? And I want to do those two things with people that I love. And when that's working, my life works. And when that's not working, my life doesn't work. Christopher, that's awesome, man. Hey, I want to close this out by thanking you, reminding all of our listeners and watchers, if you're watching the live stream, viewers, watchers, check out Play Bigger. Go grab it at your nearest bookstore. I don't know who goes to a bookstore anymore. Check out Legends and Losers. If you enjoyed this today, you'll definitely enjoy hearing more from Christopher. Thank you to uh, all of you. Just a couple shout outs. Shout out to Juliana Ray, founder of Unified Mindfulness, is launching a training program this week that is in and of itself a whole new category for folks who want to teach others about meditation and mindfulness. So congrats, Juliana Ray, on your big launch. And apologies to Bill McDermott, SAP CEO. We just ran out of time for you today. Sorry, Bill. Take care, everybody. Be legendary. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the Achieve Your Goals podcast and to get access to today's show notes, transcript, and exclusive content from Hal Elrod, visit halelrod.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the Achieve Your Goals podcast. 